brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. What's up, guys? It's Tommy from Tommy's Podcast. Do you have a podcast? Do you want it censored? Then go to YouTube. Go to Reddit. Go to iTunes. If you don't want it censored, go to Spotify or Rumble. But Spotify pays me more than Rumble, so I'm going to record this ad for them. You can upload it. Trust me. Whether you got a crappy podcast on a on a MacBook above your parents' garage and it's echoing and everyone can hear the despair and desperation and every syllable you try to eke out without wanting to cry... Or whether your podcast starts to actually make a couple shekels and you got a cool apartment and an air conditioner that works most of the time. Use Spotify. Use Spotify for podcasters. Yeah, you'll start off getting a couple pennies, but I'm several years into it now and I've made, I don't know, I think about a thousand bucks. It's better than nothing. It's better than working at a liquor store with people you hate, with customers you hate, and a boss that hates you. So join Spotify for podcasters and you'll actually start making money. It's worked some it's worked for me. I'm really tired. With Mr. Michael Vecchione, who's been on here untold times. We've talked about all of your books and all of your writings, all of which, as always, are in the uh, links are in the description and as as I always preface this by. Uh if you want to read his stuff, if you're you know, you want to just kind of the depths of, of human character and rape and murder and extortion and bribery. That's if you want a nice break from the the optimism of my podcast and want to see the gritty true world, uh, Mike will burst your bubble of any sort of cocoon that I may have wrapped around you, and he will show you just how fucked up the world is. But with that, Mike, please introduce yourself, man. Tommy, thank you for having me once again. Uh, it's always a pleasure. My name is Michael Vecchione, and um, I have been a lawyer for more years than I know uh, than I can count. And um, most of those years, uh, I was a prosecutor in the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office here in New York. The last, um, I guess the last 13 of them, I was in charge of the rackets division. I was chief of rackets. And um, and there were a lot of interesting cases that I talk about in that book that you were mentioning, Crooked Brooklyn, um, which is one of now four that I have that I have completed, and the the fourth will be out as I keep telling you um, this spring. And we're getting close to spring; it's uh, March seven, so um, I don't have a date yet. But um, I'm hoping that Tommy, that you will have me back on the show so we can talk about homicide is my business. Um, I'm insulted. I'm insulted story. that you feel the need to ask. <laughs> well, it's just to, to whet the appetite of your listeners and viewers. It's uh, the story of a Sicilian hitman who had who had done a number of murders on behalf of a big shot Don in Sicily, but he was never never became a made man, which is what he wanted to do. And um, one day he sat down and, and talked to the Don and the Don said, uh, you know, you should go to Brooklyn. 
Brooklyn needs people like you. And they, and they did. And there was, there's a whole reason for that. And I won't go into it now. Um, and he comes to Brooklyn and he, um, he hooks up with the banana crime family and becomes a hitman for them. And, um, and at the end of his career, um, by the way, he came to New York because he wanted to become a man of honor, which is what the mafia calls people who are members, sworn members of the mafia. Um, he never made it, but he did become a man of honor because he realized that the way to, to do that is to, um, to give the government information about his colleagues and to talk about the, um, the, the wild and crazy life that he lived for all those years. And he wound up testifying before Congress. <clears throat> he wound up testifying in several high profile cases and, um, and he was a character. He was a character. And, uh, and, and, and the book is all about him. <clears throat> the first part of the book is about him and, and my relationship because I met him when he turned himself in. And, um, and then I turned him over to, uh, to the feds and the feds dealt with him for a little while. And, um, and that's the story. He was, um, he, I'll never forget Luigi Roncesvalli is his name. And, um, he was uh, he was quite a uh, quite a character, uh, and I say was because he is no longer with us. He he wound up killing himself at some point. He he just couldn't live the life of a of a guy in a witness protection program, and it got to him. And um, unfortunately for him and his wife and his and his I think three daughters by the time he died, um, he's no longer with us. So, but he will live in infamy. And homicide is my business. If enough people buy the book and and i think that when they buy it they'll enjoy it so hell yeah and you've got another one after that right that's still kind of in the works well, the fiction book I'm, I'm about uh, three quarters of the way through and that's about um the about satan coming to brooklyn and wreaking havoc on the brooklyn uh on the citizens of brooklyn and a character by the name of michael gioka prosecutor, a former prosecutor, because, no, I'm sorry, a prosecutor, um, is chosen by this secret group, secret society of priests and cardinals and DOJ, Department of Justice people, to, uh, to battle with the devil. And um, that's what the book's about. It's about the cases that, um, that Michael and um, Mr. Satan get together on. So, um, yeah. So uh, I, I'm about, I, I'm supposed to turn the book in sometime in the middle of the year. It's going to be out probably in the summer. I think it'll be out that quickly. So, um, um, but they, you know, the publishing company is going to release a, a free novella about the book um, about a month before it comes out. So I will let you know that so that your, your, your followers and your listeners and, and your fans can pick it up and it'll give you the, It'll give them the taste of what the book is about. So I'm I'm actually looking forward to that one a little more. Yeah. I want to see I want to see your your creative muscle flexed. I'm I'm curious to see what that. Whenever someone kind of goes out on a limb and 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 sort of starts exploring creativity, I always think it's fascinating. I think people realize just how not even to be all again. This is the eye rolling optimist in me, but really it's it's when people kind of grow the balls to just go. Let's put it out there. It's a beautiful well, shit comes from it. I um, I have never written fiction before. This is the first time. That's why I'm excited. Uh, 
Yeah. And, and, but the book is kind of a combination of fiction and true crime. And that's why I am calling it a true crime fantasy. So, um, it'll be, that'll be the, the kind of secondary title. The title is Fallen Angel for obvious reasons, obviously the devil and also the character Michael is sort of a fallen angel because he was ostracized by the law enforcement community after he wound up convicting a dirty FBI agent uh, for four murders during um, uh, in his career. And, um, and once he convicted him, nobody wanted to have anything to do with him anymore because uh, they thought that he was a traitor to law enforcement and, and, um, they never recognized they, the people who felt that way didn't recognize his skill. This group from uh, DOJ and the Vatican did recognize his skill. And when the devil came to Brooklyn and began, as I said, wreaking havoc, they knew that Michael was the guy for the job. So, three quarters of the way through. In fact, I was working on it before I clicked on to uh, to do this podcast. So, yeah. um, so for today's reading about the murder of the firemen. We'll lay the groundwork for it, but I, to me, it does bring up a lot of like important precedents. I would imagine, in my completely non-legally trained mind, but that was the well, first I, thing that got to me was like this opens a whole bag of worms. I was hoping you would do that. You would say that because I do hope that you um, you bring all of those out through me because I know there is a lot of a lot to talk about with this case. Yeah. So well, like as we always do, why don't we jump on in and you kind of give everyone a little run over of what happened. Okay, so um, <clears throat> this was, a, as, as Tommy said, this was a firefighter who died during the course of his, um, of his duties. And um, at that time, he was the third firefighter within a month or two in New York City to die uh, in a line of duty. And um, two of them were in Queens, and one this happened in Brooklyn where I was um, assigned to the Brooklyn district attorney's office. And he was, um, I'll tell you what happened first and then I'll tell you about him. And then we'll go back to how we solved the case. Um, He and his, he was in a rescue company, which is a little bit more um, the the people in the rescue company, the guys are somewhat more experienced, somewhat more talented in terms of many, many different things that they can do. And they're used for very difficult uh, situations. Um, this particular situation was um, a, a, I would say, a shed, a garage. It's hard to describe it that in, in certain terms. That was on the property of a of a company that owned a, um, a kind of a masonry, lumberyard, uh, contracting supply company, and this shed was on the property of that company and was um, at one point was used for storage of goods of their supplies and their, their, um, um, you know, their, the things that they use to do their work. <clears throat> it had been, I don't want to say abandoned, but it had been, they, they took this stuff out. It wasn't really used for that any longer. And it was sitting, however, on, on their property. The defendant in this case, the guy who I ultimately arrested and and convicted guy by the name of Patrick Jeffers, along with a friend of his called Barrington. His name was Barrington Williams. They were using because uh, Jeffers worked for the company, I should say. Um, 
he was a, you know, he, he was did odds and ends. He was a supply guy. He did a whole bunch of things. And he knew, of course, about this garage storage shed. And um, it turns out that one day he was using the, not one day, but this particular day, he was using the garage, I'll call it garage shed, for the purpose that he had been using it for um, weeks and months uh, up until this point, unbeknownst to the company that he was working for. Um, <coughs> before the fire, I would say the day or two before the fire, the company found out that what Jeffers was doing was he was using that, that garage slash shed to cut up stolen cars. He was chopping them up for, uh, for sale parts, for sale, etc. And, um, they fired him. They told him, you know, we don't need this on our property. We don't need you any longer. And they fired him. That didn't stop him, however, from, from using the garage shed on the particular day that the firefighter was killed. And what he was doing on that day, he was cutting the, uh, the plates that carry the vehicle identification numbers for the car. He was cutting them off a wrecked Toyota Cressida because he had he and Barrington Williams had stolen a, a a Toyota Cressida that was not wrecked. It was in good shape. They had stolen it. But what they wanted to do was put the VIN numbers from the wrecked car onto the stolen car to, quote, unquote, legitimize it. And then they would either sell it or use it, et cetera. So to do that, he had to employ, he had to use um, a... a grinding tool and a metal cutting saw, circular metal cutting saw. And um, for those months that he and, and that he had been cutting up cars in that place, what they would do first is they would drop the gas tank from the car. And then they didn't care what happened. Once they dropped it, gasoline was spilled onto the floor of the car, onto the floor of the garage. And, um, and, and over the course of time, the gasoline, which was there, um, was, was letting off fumes. And this particular day, the, the car that he was cutting was up on a couple of boxes uh, or a couple of bricks or whatever it was. And he was standing over the engine compartment using the cutting tool. <clears throat> the cutting tool created what I called in my summation even – a river of sparks. I mean, Tom, you can't yeah, believe. Yeah, I've, so. I, yeah, I know. Yeah, I've seen them. Yeah, they're there. And, um, and what happened was, unbeknownst to him, the fumes of the gasoline are very, very uh, toxic and, and volatile, and they caught on fire. The fire, he couldn't put it out. I don't even know if he tried, but he couldn't put it out. Fire spread. Now keep in mind, this is an old wooden building with all kinds of gasoline, all kinds of flammable uh, substances, liquids, materials in there. And it went, it ignited like a, you know, like a lighting a, a candle on a, on a birthday cake. Yeah. What happened was, um, and, and that he left and he ran out of the place because he couldn't, the fire was getting way out of control. 
he, <clears throat> when the firefighters got there, and this is one of the things that really uh, kind of irked me and uh, when I found out about it and, and, and why I had no, I, I didn't care how much time he got because this is what happened. When the firefighters got there, Louis Valentino's company got there to put the fire out. Jeffers was standing outside the, uh, the building and they could. And the reason that, that Valentino and his company went into the building, remember it's a rescue company. Other firefighters, other firefighters were there putting out the fire. These guys went in because this was a place had been a place of business and they expected there were other people Well, there were, I shouldn't say other, there were people in that building. As it turns out, there was no one in the building. Jeffers was the only one. He didn't tell them that no one was in there. And when Valentino and his company went in to the to look around and they started searching for people to save, the roof of this structure, and I'll explain later on about the, the quality of the structure, caved in from the from the fire. And this is the way it caved in my hands. The roof was, was like this. Mm-hmm. It caved in this way. Yeah. In the vortex there, the only person was Louis Valentino. The fire, other firefighters were under this part and this part. He, oh, they now not panicked. They now got, they went outside. They tried to get, they got there. This, this, uh, kind of a, a, a blow up cushion, so to speak, that put it in, put air into it, and it lifts whatever you have mm-hmm. to. Uh, by the time they got to him, it was too late. <clears throat> he didn't die because he got hit with this thing, because he didn't. <clears throat> he was caught here and here, and he smothered, he suffocated to death as a result of this, this thing. Now, Louis Valentino, the kid, and I say the kid because his father was also named Louis Val- Louis Valentino. He was he was a the neighborhood hero. He grew up and still lived in Red Hook, Brooklyn, which is a section along the along the East River in the southern part of the of the of the borough. Um, he went to high school, went to grammar school, high school. Was a lifeguard in Coney Island. He played ball. He was uh, he he helped everybody. He was. The name, everybody loved Louis. Everybody, all the neighbors loved him. And when he he went to law school for a short period of time, decided that's not what he wanted to do. He really wanted to be a firefighter. And he wanted to be in the action. He wanted to be in a rescue company. And after several years, he was able to get into Rescue 2, which was the rescue company in Brooklyn, and uh, was living, um, you know, this this the life that he wanted to live. When he died, he had been newly married. Um, and um, and when he when this tragedy occurred, it was like a black cloud had settled over Red Hook and over his with his neighbors. He was um, he was mourned. It was firefighters loved him. Um, he was an ace. He really was. And uh, and it was a, it was a, a tragedy um, because. There was no one in the building for the rescue company to rescue. But Louis didn't know that. And he did his job and went in 
and as a, and as a hero. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job; it's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov/careers. So um, <clears throat> the investigators, the fire marshals. Now I'm not involved in the case at this point. I was in charge at that point of the trial division of the DA's office, which meant that I supervised all of the trials in the section of the DA's office called the Supreme Court Bureau and other and other bureaus that did trials. So um, the rackets division, which I later became chief of, had the case because they also did arsons. And um, it quickly, the fire marshals quickly discovered what was up in terms of Jeffers and, and what he was doing, because they obviously searched the place after the fire was put out. They saw the cut up cars. They saw the, the uh, saw, they saw all of his materials and, um, and they ultimately arrest, they arrest Patrick Jeffers and they arrest Barrington Williams. Um, the DA's office, the guy who, who had the case from the rackets division only charged at that point these guys with trespass and some other minor, oh, uh, possession of stolen property, the car. Mayor was beside himself. The DA was beside himself. The firefighters were up in arms. They all wanted a murder charge because they believed that but for Jeffers doing what he was doing, uh, Louis would still be would still be alive. So um, <clears throat> what happens is the, as I said before, this was the third firefighter that was killed in the city within a short period of time. And the mayor was, was Rudy Giuliani. And Giuliani was um, very vocal about his support for cops and firefighters and um, didn't sit well with him that this guy died in this way, particularly since it was Louis. Um, and he, as politicians do, you know, made it known to the DA that uh, this would not sit well. You know, something's got to be done. You guys got to go back to the drawing board and see what, what, what you can do. Now, Louis Valentino's father was also, um, he's not a politician, but he was an executive in the financial area of the city, had retired by the time I got to know him, he was a financial officer of the Longshoremen's Union at that time. His mother was um, was the typical Italian housewife. She was a great cook. She was a great mother. She doted on Louis, who was our only child. And um, and they, you know, they made a very, very empathetic and sympathetic couple. And then there was his his new wife. I think her name was Diane. Um, and when the papers, newspapers, you know, got the story, it became uh, it became incumbent upon the DA to figure out some way to look at this and see if something more could be done. <clears throat> so I had been in the office at that point for uh, 
for a few years, and I had tried several big cases, both as chief of homicide and also in the position I was in then as chief of the trial division. And he called me on the phone and he said, the case is going to be yours. Now, it made for a little bit of a, a problem. I mean, I knew the guy that had the case and now he was being booted off and he was being and it was being given to me. And um, uh, it, it was so I, I you know, I, I tried to finesse it as best I could. But I knew the guy was pissed at me. I mean, he knew I knew he was he was angry. So, listen, I'm going to look at this. And um, he said, you know, and basically he said to me, good luck. You're not going to get any further than I do. So I, I said, okay, if that's the case, you know, I'm always up for a challenge. And, um, and I got all, every single piece of paper that I could from every source, the fire marshals. By the way, the fire marshals are firefighters who are law enforcement officers. And what they do is they investigate fires for arson and for, um, for crimes. That's, that's what they call them in New York. They're called fire marshals. I never knew that. Yeah. So, um, so I got their paperwork. I got the police department's paperwork. I got the DA's office's paperwork. And I started. I, I dug in. And, um, and, and as I read this and as I started to learn more about this, an idea started to form in my head. And, um, and I, I knew that. And, and by the way, I had, the guy who had the case before me said, Mike, there's no way to charge this guy with murder or even manslaughter. The, the facts just aren't there. Okay, let me take a look. So as I started to read, started to think about something. <coughs> First thing I did was I got, I used my investigators, the investigators who were assigned to the DA's office to help me. Fire marshals were going to help me as well, but I needed some people I could talk to every day because they were doing it with me. So I said to them, listen, let's go and speak to um, let's go and speak to the, the people at the, it was called Glenwood, I think Glenwood uh, Masonry, but it was the company that Jeffers worked for. Now, up until this point, everybody, the only, the only people, everybody knew, every investigator knew, because no one ever asked, that Jeffers worked there, that he was an employee. In fact, you see the paperwork, it says, when they talk about describing the incident, um, an employee of the company was using the, the garage for cutting up cars, etc. right? So we made an appointment and went down to Glenwood, I think it was Glenwood, Masonry, and spoke to the owner, actually one of two owners. It was a, I think it was a brother and sister or a husband and wife. I don't remember. But we spoke to the, the female owner. I think she was the sister. And I said, tell me about Jeffers. And tell me about, you know, what he, how he worked here. Did you like him? What was his thing? She said to me immediately, just, no, we didn't. In fact, we fired him two or three days before the fire occurred. Now. Now you've got something. Now I had something. I said, okay. I had part one of what I needed. Part two, I now needed to find out exactly what Jeffers and Barrington Williams were doing in there. Because initially it was thought that they were fixing cars, that they were, that they had an illegal business. They were using this garage to repair cars. That was what 
everyone thought and everyone was told. So um, what we did was, what I did was I grabbed Barrington Williams and we brought him in and basically he sat him down and said, listen, here's the deal. If I can prove that this is a murder, you're going. That's 25 to life, pal. And you killed the firefighter. You're not seeing uh, the light of day after 25 years either. So here's your chance to tell me what was going on there. And that's when he told me that what they were doing was not repairing cars. They were cutting up stolen cars. And on this particular day, Jeffers was cutting the VIN number plates off the old, broken down, destroyed Cressida, Toyota Cressida, so they could put it onto one of their stolen cars, another Cressida, and make it, quote unquote, legitimate. I said, you sure? He goes, yeah. So that's what they do. And, um, and he told me about how they had other cars that they had cut up, how they dropped the gas tanks, how the gasoline is on the floor, all of this stuff. So now I had my theory, and this is what the theory was. In, in New York law, a burglary is not necessarily what people believe the word burglary means. It means that breaking into a house, into a store, and stealing something that doesn't belong to you, okay? That's not the only meaning of a burglary. The definition is being on a premises illegally with intent to commit a crime in that premises. Why is that? That's a burglary. So if I break into your house with the intent to steal your property, I'm in your house illegally, correct? And the intent and the crime I want to commit is the crime of larceny taking your property. How do, okay. they, how do they prove, how do you prove intent versus just, I mean, I'm just thinking if I'm, if I'm a shit bag and I get a good lawyer, I'm going to be like, yeah, now, no, I was just checking out the house. Bad, by, sure. the, by the actions themselves, okay. by what the guy did in it. If he was just checking it out, he wouldn't have had, he wouldn't have taken your TV set, your wallet, your money, your, uh, your watch, your, your, uh, you know, your, your computer. Clearly, what he was in there for, in the normal sense of the word burglary, is to steal. Okay? It's also a burglary, let's say, to break into a young woman's house because the guy, and then have sex with her because he, she won't talk to the guy. That's a burglary, too, in addition to the sex crime because he broke in there illegally with intent to commit the rape, and he did commit the rape. So, okay. so that, that is the theory. In this case, how I made this a burglary, and I'll tell you why I wanted it to be a burglary and how that led me to murder, it was a burglary because he had been fired from the company and was therefore on the company property in the company garage illegally with intent to commit a crime while he was in there. And what was the crime? Possession of stolen property and the removal of a vehicle identification number from one car to another car. Those are crimes in New York state. So the burglary was a complete, was, was complete. And Barrington Williams gave me the information I needed 
because he told me they were in there cutting up stolen cars. So if you're in there and you're cutting up a stolen car, A, you're possessing stolen property, and B, you're removing, in this case, removing the VIN number, okay? So that was the first part of what I needed. The second part was, I shouldn't say needed, how that gets me to a murder in New York and in many, many, many other jurisdictions. If a person dies during the course of a felony, and burglary is one of the felonies that's listed in the in the statute, then the individual who committed the burglary is guilty and can be found guilty of murder. It's called felony murder. Okay. It's different from intentional murder. It's different from depraved indifference murder. It's called felony murder. So another example, let's assume someone goes into a store and holds the store up with a gun, right? He's in the premises illegally, holding the, and he orders the, the storekeeper to give him his money, the money in his uh, cash register. While he's in there with the gun out, a person walks in and let's say trips and falls and hits his head on the, um, on, on the counter, okay? That guy, the guy who did the, who did the holdup, could be found guilty of felony murder because someone died during the course of that felony, which was the robbery that was being committed. Okay. Now, now so, would, to be okay, lawyer Tommy, would it have to be that that person walked in and was scared and fell, or could they just walk in and have have like an aneurysm and drop it? Well, I, I think that you would find it a lot easier to prosecute if he had gotten scared and and tripped on the way out or or fell. I think when an aneurysm is called it superseding intervening cause, you know, you, you can't hold the guy I, responsible I could, for that. I could be a slimy lawyer. I could do this. I could, okay. I could defend so, these uh, bags. <laughs> yeah. So they, I mean, and, and also let's say there's another way of, of explaining felony murder. Let's say two guys go into the store. One guy has a gun. He's holding it on the, uh, the storekeeper takes them, orders them to give him the money. The storekeeper reaches underneath the counter, takes out a gun and shoots his accomplice. Right. The guy that's wow. in the store as his backup. Guess what? The guy who came in to <laughs> rob the store is guilty of murder of his accomplice. I did cases like that Jesus. as well. So so that's the felony murder theory. And that's why it's it, if you can use it, you don't have to intend to kill anybody in order to be found guilty of murder under that theory. That was my theory. Got it. It was a felony murder because of the circumstances that he was in there illegally and he was cutting up the car, and he started the fire, cutting up the car. The place came down, killed Louis Valentino. So I went to the DA. I went to some of my colleagues first and said, listen, this is my theory. What do you think? They basically said, you're out of your fucking mind. That's no, nobody's going to buy that. That's bullshit. No, why? Because they, they were only thinking about the easy ones, like I told you before. The burglary was a go- the guy broke in to steal something. Well, then it's clear. Um, this, in my opinion, was gonna was would hold up. I said, okay, I, I disagree with you. I went to the DA, and I was honest with him. I said, there are a lot of people around here who think I'm I'm crazy, but I think I'm right. Give me a shot. Let me do this. And he did. He did. He said, okay, go go with it. Went to the grand jury, <clears throat> presented the evidence all of the 
witnesses and, and the fire marshal and everyone. And um, I got an indictment for murder in the second degree, felony murder for the actions of Jeffers doing what he did in that garage. Um, the day that we went to arrange, to the arraignment to arraign him on the indictment, he shows up uh, two law professors from Brooklyn Law School show up to represent him. They actually were husband and wife, but they were scholars, professors at Brooklyn Law School. And at the arraignment, they said to the judge, uh, they asked for a bail. Of course, the judge denied it, held him with no bail. And they said, we would like some time to prepare a motion to dismiss because we don't believe that there is enough here to satisfy the statute and to satisfy the evidence, et cetera, et cetera. Judge said, okay, you have some time. They came to me a couple of times while they were preparing these papers in my office. <clears throat> and they said to me, you know, Ooh, we want to prepare. You so strong about this. What is your thinking? What, what did you think? And I told them, I told them what, I, what my, my thought process was. Tommy, they didn't buy it at all. They said, you know, good luck. We'll see you in court. You're going to have to wind up try, trying our client if you want for some kind of minor charge. There's no way this stands up. I said, okay, I'll see you in court. So I prepare the answer. I go in. The judge hears the argument. Rules in my favor. The, the case stands. They then went on an interim appeal basis to the appellate division, which is the next level court in, in New York and made the same argument to the judges in the appellate division. The appellate division ruled against them as well. So that meant that they now had to try the case in Supreme Court. So um, by the time we got to the point of, of ultimately trying it, he got a trial lawyer to represent them. He didn't have these two, you know, uh, um, uh, scholar type lawyers, these, these appellate type people to represent them because they had never done a trial before. Um, so I got the case and began to prepare it. And I, I took as my second seat, someone who was going to help me through this, a real sharp, um, very uh, well-educated, terrific young woman lawyer, Michelle Johnson. And she's now a judge. Um, and, um, and Michelle was, I mean, she was really new to the office and she was surprised that I told her. And I took her and I said, listen, man, I, I've been watching you and I know that you've got it and, um, and you really can help me with this. And, um, and we started on, on preparing this. Now, Tom, as, as lawyers know, when you get a case that is a little bit of a, you know, kind of a little off the beaten path kind of thing, you have to educate yourself on the parts of the case that are those off the beaten path parts. You don't need to educate yourself on how a gun works when it, when a bullet goes into someone's body and they're dead. I mean, that's, yeah. that's simple, yeah, yeah. but how, what was the science behind the, the ignition of the fire? And how did this fire so quickly? Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, 
Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Um, not burn the building down. Before the building burnt down, the roof collapsed. What was the physics behind that? So I had to learn all of this stuff. Um, and I did. I did. I got it. I got uh, several experts who were willing to talk to me. And, um, and they told me, this is the first time I ever heard this. Now, I always knew, as you, I'm sure you do as well, that gasoline is, is, um, is flammable, right? Put a, a, a match to it and you get a fire, right? Spread it around someone's home, light it up, and the home's going to burn down. You can start a fire. There was no gasoline, really, that was ignited there. I didn't know that gas fumes are actually, according to these experts, more Mm -hmm. flammable than gasoline itself. The fumes are what is the problem. So that was a, a, I, I learned it. You know, uh, that's, I was, I was surprised, but it made sense to me because when Barrington Williams told us that there was no gasoline around, there had been gasoline can, uh, the gas tanks had been dropped a long time ago, but that the fumes were still, were still there. I I had a difficult time thinking how I was going to prove that this, you know, how they ignited, but then I got the expert in and it, it was he was absolutely positive that that's, you know, that was what it was. So I said, okay, now I had to get a structural engineer in to educate me on how this building, um, how the roof of this building collapsed and the way that it did. So he went out to the, to the structure. He got the plans from, of the structure and he, <clears throat> He studied them, talked to me, talked to the owners, talked to everyone who could talk to the fire marshals. And he told me, came into my office and we sat down, Shell, and he said, I have, I have an ant, have the answer. So the building was not, you know, I don't think that they spent a lot of money putting this building up. I mean, it was a, it was basically a storage facility for, you know, for, uh, for, for cement bags and for things that the masonry companies Mm -hmm. was using. Um, it was built, um, it was built almost like if you went into the woods and you wanted to build a kind of a lean to shack for, uh, for two nights in the woods, you put some, some sticks this way, you put some sticks this way and you, uh, you know, you put the roof along the sticks that you have here, right? Yeah. Well, it didn't have sticks underneath the roof. The roof was supported by the, the, sides of the building which were supported by these beams okay and and i'm sorry the the walls were built around the beams and the beam sat inside the wall but the ceiling was braced uh the these walls these 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 pillars braced the ceiling so essentially the ceiling was a a pointed ceiling cathedral-like ceiling it came down and where it met the walls of the building Steel girders were there supporting it, okay? 
And then the girders were, um, I guess, riveted or somehow attached to the, to the ground. So he said to me, Mike, it's very simple. This is what happened. The fire started, and because the fumes are so flammable, the fire was hot very quickly, very, very hot. And the longer it went on before the firefighters got there, the more the beams, the steel beams began to bend and twist, which is what they did. They twisted as a result of being heated up. And you could, you could, you put something into a fire sometimes and you see if yeah, it's it gets, metal, gets weaker, it may twist, yeah. right? It's weaker. So that's what happened. As soon as they got to the point where they couldn't, they couldn't support the roof any longer, the roof came down. And it came down that way because the beams were out here and the roof collapsed inward this way. And that's what caught Louis in the, in the vortex. So, so let me take you into, before I get to, the, to, to what ultimately happens. During all of this preparation, um, Michelle and I got to know Louis Valentino's father, his mother, his wife. But his father, his father was a guy that um, you would love. I mean, you'd have him on here. And, and he was, uh, he was a, a, a big kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, guy who was not shy. I mean, he told you what he thought and, and had a lot. He was very smart. He, he was just a guy that knew a lot about life and, um, and was just a, a terrific guy. He, he really kind of, um, he was very happy that somebody had taken over the case after this, you know, this, this attempt to bring this guy Jeffers to justice with these, you know, misdemeanor violation kind of charges. So during the, during the prep, trial prep, which took over the course of several months, I used to play basketball on, on Thursday nights with a bunch of guys from the DA's office. We rented a, um, a school, I shouldn't say rented, a school that was near the office, let us use it, the gym, their gym. So um, one night playing and, um, and I come down with a rebound and I land wrong. I land and I land on my heel and I basically tore the uh, meniscus, I'm sorry, tore the, um, the plantar fasciitis, uh, plantar tendon in the middle of my foot, runs down the middle of the, mm-hmm. the foot from the heel to the, to the front of the foot. Anyway, I had to be in, in crutches for, I, I guess I was in crutches for about a month, but we had to continue to work because the judge wanted the case tried expeditiously and we had to keep doing it. So we did. And obviously I wasn't doing manual labor. I was sitting at my desk interviewing firefighters, interviewing witnesses, interviewing people, that kind of thing. One day, Michelle and I are in the office and, um, not that long after I got hurt, must have been maybe the next week. I, I got hurt on a Thursday night. Must have been maybe Monday or Tuesday. I get a call from our front desk. There's a detective on the front desk who was like, you know, who's the who screens people who come into the office, etc. So he calls me. He says, "Mike, there's a somebody left something out here for you." I said, "What? Well, just come out and we'll see." So I go out. I limp out there, and what do I see? There are a pair of crutches and an adjustable cane with a little note from Louis Valentino Sr. He had heard about what happened to me 
and he wanted to make sure that uh, I was okay and uh, and left the crutches for me. He said, you know, these can probably, these can help you, I'm sure. And the cane, I'm sure you could use. Well, I got to tell you something. I, I I had crutches from the doctor, but I, but the cane really did help me. But the thought behind this really moved, I have to tell you. He was the head, at that point, he had left the city. He was the head of the Health and Welfare Fund of the Longshoremen's Union. So he had access to all of this medical uh, paraphernalia and, and medical equipment, and he, and he gave them to us. Another time, we had to get to court um, particularly early, and, um, and he knew that we were working. No, we had to get to court at 930, but he knew that we were in the office early, Michelle and I, working on a particular witness. We had to get him ready, et cetera. When we got to the courtroom, at, on the front, on our desk, on our table, was a box of pastries. He gave, he brought the pastries because he knew that we would not have had time to have breakfast. And he wanted us, um, as he said, when I, I turned around and I, and he looked at me, nodded, and I said, thank you. I said, why? He goes, you need your strength. You got to have breakfast. So we were able to kind of have enough, have a pastry or two before the trial started. But that's the kind of guy he was. That's, he was just a, a wonderful man. Um, so we got ready for trial. And uh, I was as confident as I could possibly be. I was satisfied that the law was on my side. The facts, however, you know, I, I had to sell this jury on the idea that cutting up this car started this fire, you know, Um, how many people do you think ladies and gentlemen of the jury know what a metal saw does to, to metal and what happens when you, when you cut it Uh, to tell you the truth, I had it in my head, a little idea, but I, I didn't know either, but that, happened to be the issue. We called all of the witnesses we can. And I, you know, I've been doing this a long time and had been doing it a long time then. And I got the sense, I said to Michelle, we go back to the office one day and she said to me, well, what's, what's the matter? You seem like something's wrong. Things are going great. I said, Michelle there, the problem is I don't think the jurors know what we're talking about and can't appreciate what this saw did in terms of creating the sparks to ignite this, to ignite the fumes. She said, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I said, nah, trust me. I, I, as I said to her, same thing I just said to you, I've been doing this a long time. I could read the jurors and I just didn't get the sense that, that they were, they, they had had it in their head that this was the, you know, the, they were able to start this fire this way. So <laughs> I came up with a, another idea. Again, when you're on trial, and again, you're doing this stuff for such a long time, you got to adapt. You have to kind of, um, you know, if, if they throw you a curveball, you got to kind of get into the batting cage and learn how to hit the curveball, right? You, gotta, you just got to do what is necessary to get to the point of being able to, to legally, of course, sell your story to the jury. So I had this idea and I couldn't, didn't know if I could pull it off. <clears throat> there were several steps I had to go through. One was I had to get the fire marshal on the phone. And I said to him, <clears throat> is the saw that you guys, the electric saw that you recovered, 
that day in the, in the place, is it still around? He goes, yeah, it's in the evidence locker. I said, okay, great. I said, get it out. And I'll tell you what I want you to do with it when, after you answer the next question. I said, do you believe that you could go to the pound, the police pound, which is where they keep all of the stolen cars and abandoned cars and all kinds of stuff. Do you think that you could find a Toyota Cressida just like the one that he was cutting that day in the garage? He said, I don't know, Mike, I'll, I'll go. Tommy, two hours later, I get a call from the fire marshal. He says, I, I found the Cressida. <laughs> I said, is it exactly the same model? He goes, exactly the same model. I said, okay, take the saw, go to the, go to the pound and find the car that you just found, locate it, and meet my detectives, my investigators at the, at the, pound, at the pound. And then I told them what I wanted them to do. And I told these, my guys, what they wanted. So what we, what we did was we got the saw working. And I had one of my detectives take the saw and do exactly what Jeffers was doing, mm-hmm. which was to cut a particular piece off the, the engine of that car while the fire marshal filmed the entire thing. Tommy, it was like it was like Fourth of July with the sparks. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. So they brought he brought the, the video back. I watched it. I said, man, this is, this is great. Now all I got to do is get the judge to allow me to put it into evidence. Okay, it's not a given. I had, to, I had to make an argument. There is something in the law which says that you're allowed to introduce into evidence something that demonstrates a part of what you're trying to put to, across to the jury. It's called demonstrative evidence. And I looked at it, I researched it, and this fit perfectly. The, the definition and the legal, you know, the, the case law about what demonstrative evidence was. And I prepare an argument. So the next day, well, before that, I gave my, my opponent my motion, and I gave him notice so he could prepare a defense to it, an answer to it. And we go to court. The judge sets aside... A, uh, he told the jury to come in, I think it may be at one o'clock or afternoon that day, as opposed to nine 30 in the morning. So we had us in the courtroom that morning. So I had the fire marshal there. I had my detectives there. I had the video. I had a video player. I had a screen I had everything. Um, and I made my argument and I told him why I wanted to do this. He said, you know, it's not, ordinary kind of thing. If, if this was, you know, somebody lit a match to, uh, let's say, uh, a, a piece of furniture, well, the jury knows what that is. They don't need the demonstration as to how a sofa goes up. But this was different. This was, how many people have ever seen somebody cutting a piece of a car? I mean, I, I, I can't say I have, because I have never seen that. No. And, and I didn't, and I, and I was told the fire marshal told me before this, he said, Mike, this, these saws create a lot of sparks. It's not something that, you know, it's not just, uh, it's not something to be trifled with. So um, I made the argument, and that was my argument, that this is something that the, judge, the jury needed to see in order to grasp 
the severity of what this guy was doing and how this fire ignited and burnt down this uh, and, and caused this roof to collapse. The defense attorney, Tommy, went crazy, went nuts. He did everything except jump on his table and and scream at the judge to get him to deny me the ability to show this video to the jury. I had a great judge, I have to tell you. I had tried cases in front of him before. I, I had a, he was a good lawman, but I had a pretty good sense that that he was gonna he was gonna go for this. No guarantee, because he could throw a curveball here or there. But um, but I, I I felt good, and the judge agreed with me. So I had the jury came in. When they came in, I had the whole courtroom all set up. Now I didn't use. I don't think. Maybe we used the big screen TV. I don't remember, but. What we used was clear as and big, and the jury could see exactly what happened. Turned it on. Well, first I set it up by calling the fire marshal to the stand, telling him what he did. He had the saw. He went to the pound. He searched around. He found the exact car. And, um, and then he went on to describe what took place that night. And I made sure they did it at night because I didn't – I, I wanted contrast. those sparks. Yeah, you know, I get the contrast. I get yeah. So Tom, as the thing was playing, I knew I had the jury because they sat up in their in their chairs and they closed, you know, and looked. You know how when you want to pay much, someone pays attention, like you kind of sit up in your chair and pay attention. Yeah, all of them did that. All of them. <laughs> I thought I was in good shape, <clears throat> and it played. And, uh, and as it turns out, you know, we, it was very, very important. So trial ended, I guess, on, on a Tuesday. Yeah, that was, I did that on a Monday. Trial ended Tuesday. Everybody rested. Defense didn't put any defense on. Or he may have put on, he may have put someone on to, I, I don't remember, but I don't think he did. Um, because he was certain that I had not proved my case. We summed up on Wednesday, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Judge wanted the case that to that point before the jury left for the Thanksgiving holiday. So we summed up, defense sum, in the state court in New York, defense sums up first. The prosecution who has the burden of proof gets the last word. And the way I started this summation was um, I didn't even tell Michelle Johnson, my co-counsel, what I was going to say. And I started out by, you know, the usual good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and, you know, thank you for all your attention. And um, so it was a difficult case, an interesting case, but a difficult one. And um, then I paused and I simply said, as you all know, tomorrow's Thanksgiving. And all of us in this courtroom will be at the Thanksgiving table with our family. And the, Louis, and the Valentino family was in the first row of the courtroom. I would say maybe less than, maybe about 10 feet away from the jury box. And I said, 
but the Valentino family, they will be doing exactly the same thing, except that they're going to have an empty chair at their table for the first time in whatever it was, 33 years, whatever, how long. Why? Because then I pointed to Jeffers because he did, and I summed up from there. I turned around and looked, and I had prepared the Valentino family for what I was going to say because tugging at the heartstrings of the jury is one of the things that I did all the time when I could. Sure. I turned and looked at them, and all of them were crying. More important, (laughs) more interesting was that the courtroom was filled with Valentino's friends from the fire department, all of these big, burly, tough guy firefighters. Every one of them, Tommy, every one was crying. By the time I ended, they were, they had handkerchiefs out and they were, you know, the time I ended the summation. I I have to say it was one of the most satisfying summations I had ever done in my life because I loved Mr. Valentino. He was such a great guy. I felt horrific for his, for Louie's wife. I think they were married like three months or something. It was, uh, he, and by the way, they had been like childhood sweethearts. Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Valentino, Louie's mother was, was like, look, reminded me of my my grandmother, you know, my mother. I mean, she was, I'm sure that her Sunday tomato sauce and, and macaroni was, uh, perfect, you know? So, um, that was, so we all went home after that, came back on Friday morning for the judge, the judge charged the jury and gave them the case to begin deliberating. Courtroom, court day ends at five o'clock. I would say it must have been somewhere between two and three o'clock. We got word the jury has a verdict. It was a guilty verdict. And I, and I, and, and and the defense attorney was shocked in his how, how he was shocked. I had no idea, but he was. He said, "Don't worry about it." To his, I heard him say it to his client. We'll appeal. There's no way to stands up in the appellate courts. Mister Valentino and his family were so unbelievably happy that they had you know we brought closure to them, and it was there was someone who answered for the this horrific murder of their kid who was doing nothing except his job. All he was doing was he, he was saving, trying to save these phantoms. And he didn't know that there were, there was no one in that, in that building. And Jeffers, as I said before, could have saved his life. If he had just told the firefighters, there's no one in there. You know, it was, it was just, he didn't do it. So um, after the, I would say, Maybe within a week, Michelle and I get this invitation in our mailboxes in the DA's office. Mr. Valentino was going through a party for us at one of the, one of, at that point, Brooklyn's premier Italian restaurants, which wasn't that far from our office. And um, he, he had rented the top, room of the restaurant, the top floor, which was kind of like a catering area that the restaurant had, had all of Louis's family, all of his wife's family, all of their friends, the investigators who worked on the case, the fire marshals, and Michelle and I, and he honored us at this thing. It was, 
it was unbelievable. It was really a, a touching thing. And I, and I, I, I remember it to this day. And, um, and I got a, a little aside that I have to tell you listeners about five years later, <laughs> yeah. when I was in charge of the rackets division, we made a series of arrests of Brooklyn restaurants for failing to pay state um, sales tax. And one of the places that we raided and, <laughs> and locked up the owner was the restaurant that Louis Valentine. <laughs> the guy, you know, I happened to see, and the guy that owned it, was friends with judges and friends with other lawyers and friends with people that I knew. And I, I was invited to another, another affair probably a month or two after that. And I, I was in, in this area, this VIP area and who comes walking in, but this guy that owned the restaurant, it was like, it was really a, a strange, but he, he turns out as it turns out, he was a made member of the Gambino family. I didn't even I didn't even know that because I wasn't in in that business at that point, but it turns out he was. And and he had two sets of books. It was so simple to prove this case. He had one set of books that he was that he, that he used to pay the taxes to the government, and he had the real set of books. Um, and we found them in the uh, in the restaurant. Anyway, <clears throat> so um, the case goes up on appeal. And they were, the defense was very, very confident that there was no way I was going to get this to stick. And I got to tell you something. There were people in my office who thought the same way. They were just, there's no way this is, this is going to, you know, this is going to happen. And um, there were a lot of people in that office who resented the fact that I had won as many cases as I did. They thought that, you know, they had been doing this work for so long and I, I was brought in from the, from the private practice and I started to win cases and they, they, there were people who resented it. And um, as I told you before, when, when I was given the case by the DA, the guy that had it before me, he resented the fact that, that the DA thought he wasn't good enough to do it. Um, so to go to the appellate division, that's a three-judge panel. Argument is is done, and the people in the in my in our appeals bureau, the person who argued it, was with me one hundred percent in terms of the legality. She was she was you know she said we're, I'm confident it's going to be okay. The appellate division rules for me and against the defendant. They don't reverse the conviction. So that's good. Very good. Now it goes to the states, the highest court in New York state, the appeal, the, the uh, court of appeals. And those law professors now got themselves back in the case. Actually, I take it back. They were involved in the, in the appellate division as well. So that was their that was their strength. They were, you know, law people. They argued the law. They knew how to handle this kind of stuff. The trial guy did the trial. So they now went to the appellate, the uh, Court of Appeals. And um, by the time the Court of Appeals heard the case, I think that I had gone to rackets. I don't think I was in the um, in the trial division any longer. I had taken over and became chief of rackets. And um and unbeknownst to me, I pick up the law journal one morning 
And um, the Law Journal is the, the, the lawyer's paper, you know, it's got all the decisions and front pages has the headlines for big cases that are decided. And there it was in the Law Journal. The Court of Appeals, again, ruled in my favor and said, essentially, there was absolutely nothing wrong with that theory. The murder conviction stands. <clears throat> By the way, I forgot to tell you this. He got 25 to life from the trial judge. And let's see, he might still be last. When I was, when I left the DA's office in, in 13, he was still in, in jail. He had not gotten out. He, and then later on, I found out that he was still in jail a couple of years later. He might still be there. He might still be in jail at this point. So, um, so this guy basically was a, <laughs> was a car thief who basically cut cars up to sell, you know, to, uh, to chop. He was, he was doing, he was a chop shop. He would sell parts to, you know, to bad guys who were put to, who had stolen cars and needed pieces. And, um, and he was doing the same thing himself. He went from that to a murderer. And um, I, I can't, every time I think back on it and I think about how that, that idea came to me. Um, I, I can't even begin to tell you, Tom, how, where I was. Where I just, one, it was kind of like, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you get an idea and it just kind of like, no, it's, it's lightning. it was there. I said, you know what? This is, and, and as soon as the owner of the, of the masonry place told me that she had fired him, I knew that. I had, uh, I, I was on the right track and it turns out that I was. So, uh, about, I would say also I got, I went to a, um, in addition to Louis Valentino's father having this big party for us, one day I get a, I get a message from the fire marshals. I, I used to do a lot of work with them for, at, at some point they were having this big, they had this, uh, uh monthly meeting at a restaurant in Queens, actually not very far from where I now live. I had no idea where this restaurant was. I was a Brooklyn guy, you know, Queens, Eastern Queens is where I, I, I lived for a short period, but this was in Long Island city, which is a, a close area, close to Brooklyn. I had no idea where this restaurant was. And I, I said, ah, all right. You know, I'll go to the meeting. I said, no, 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 you need to be there. And I got there and um, it was another one of these uh, meetings to honor me. And they gave me this beautiful plaque that, um, that uh, I, I still can I show it to you? I yeah, have it right here. Yeah, of course, grab it. Let me just give me a second. Yeah, go get it. Yeah, I was, I was gonna, I was gonna say reading, uh, reading the story earlier. I was gonna say it wouldn't be a, a Mike Vecchione story if it didn't end with, oh yeah, and the owner of the restaurant was a made member of the Gambino family. <laughs> I don't know if you can see it. Can you see it? Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, that's the um, that's the plaque Fire that I received. Valentine. Yeah, and um, it was. Um, I mean, I had this hanging in my office in a prominent place for a long time, and when I retired, I moved, you know, into this into this spot where I live now with my wife. There's a a place of honor that I keep it, and um, it, it was, um, you know, it's it's got this brass with the firefighter mm. holding a little kid. You know, it's really a um, firefighter's shield yeah. down here and see it. Yeah. So 
So this was um, this is what they gave me, and uh, I was so taken aback by that. I didn't expect it. I may, you know, may have expected a free lunch, a couple of glasses of wine before I went back to work. But yeah. I got this, and this, you know, they were all um, they were all so so gracious to me. And you know, the thing is that when I got to Rackets, the all of the arson stuff was handled by Rackets. <clears throat> I worked with these fire marshals. All I had to do was pick the phone up and, and whatever I needed, they, uh, they were. And even after they, some of them retired, I would hear from, from these guys that they, they formed their own investigative services, you know, to, to investigate fires and stuff on behalf of insurance companies, et cetera. And I would get calls from, from these guys and, um, and they would, they would just to say, you know, how you doing? You know, we just want you to know we're thinking about you, that kind of thing. It was it was a tremendous, a tremendous case. And um, and I told you that the book that I'm writing is um, is is one of three. I got a I got a three book deal. I think that I'm going to incorporate the Louis Valentino case into either book two or three and have the devil be involved. I was about in, to say you have to. If the entire thing is based on these machinations. You, you have yeah. to have you have to have Satan in the fires of hell. Yeah. So the thing is, I'll never, and then Louis, unfortunately, I would say maybe two or three years ago, Mr. Valentino passed away. Um, And uh, it it really, and I read about it in the newspaper. I I don't think anybody, I didn't get a call or anything from him, but I read about it. And I I felt, you know, I felt really bad. The guy treated me as if I was, treated me as, as if I was his son. I mean, he took care of us. Yeah. And um, and it was um, it was a, a terrific, uh, really a terrific um, experience. Unfortunately, the Valentino family didn't think it was such a terrific experience. And I don't say terrific in the sense that it was, you know, this wonderful experience. But to be able to bring closure to these people, to be able to bring a bad guy to justice for for killing a really good guy. I mean, this Louis was a good guy. In fact, he. They, down in Red Hook, in his part in his neighborhood, they named a ball field after him after his after his death because he was he was an umpire. He played ball there, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, to be part of this really was one of the most, uh, you know, I was honored to be part of this thing. And it was a, a highlight of my career to have this this case and to deal with it, you know. So um, it's, it's that's for for me the the. Yeah, I guess. Well, I guess you answered it during the podcast. Was that was my question? Is you know, if it wasn't an illegal chop shop, if they were just like if that was just part of the business and they were just doing after hours work and it all burned down, would it still be felony murder? Would it, it just would have no. been? No, no, it wouldn't. That's have been. What, yeah, that's what's insane. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it would not because that was the crime. Yeah, yeah, burglary, it illegal. Being on there illegally, in there illegally, with intent to commit a crime, in there. So, yeah. crime could have been anything. I mean, if they were, um, you know, if they were taking numbers in there, or they were, you know, illegal gambling, that that would have been enough. But that probably wouldn't have started a fire with a, sure. a deck of cards. <laughs> sure, but that's yeah, so, sure, yeah. Good. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's well, you answered my question. You know, I got to tell you one 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 little thing, and I and, and I'll. Uh, let you go because I know that we're we're past. I remember um, when I at one point after the case was over and and after some years had passed, I had to go to Home Depot for something, 
And I was walking down one of the aisles and uh, up one of the aisles into one of the main aisles of, of the Home Depot. And there was a display of these handheld electric saws. And the first thing I thought of was Louis Valentino's case. It was, I said, man, there it is. I can't, you know, it was, uh, it, it really struck me. I mean, it's, and, you know, you see something in a hardware store, that, that's not what you're expected to see, but that, seeing that was, you know, kind of brought it all home. So, um, no, it's, it's, you know, it, no, I get that. I mean, whenever I see like my older brother's car, he had it was just like a random Volkswagen. It makes me think of anyone else. It's just a random fucking black car. And I just see a yeah. shitty Volkswagen. And yeah, no, it, it always hits me <laughs> like a gut punch. It's yep. yeah. You don't. Yeah. It's yeah. 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 Um, well, that's why I'm, I'm very proud to have this plaque here in my, in this area where I do my work, my writing is right behind me on the, you know, on a, on a, a shelf that we have. And, um, Reminds me of him every t- every day. I you know I, I just something about the case that really stuck with me, and um, you know it's uh, it, and I am going to include it. Uh, I'll figure out a way of you have to having Satan be the you be have the, to yeah the instigator. So you can't we'll not say. you can't that one's yeah. served up to you. And you know the thing is that the I, my premise is that that Satan is here to create chaos, and when you have people like firefighters or police officers or you know, uh, doctors or nurses who were killed or murdered, um, that creates panic in people, you know, and, um, and it's, um, it, it is, that is, was his mission. And, and it is the, his mission in my book is to, is to create panic and chaos and to instigate as much uh, turmoil in, in a society as you possibly can, hoping that it'll be a lasting, have lasting effects. So, so that's, um, that's it, my friend. Thank you very much for, course, uh, dude. as always, thank you for, coming. for having me. Thank you for coming on. I, I love your stories. And that's, it's actually one of the relatively, yeah, it's still the death of someone sweeter stories of Mike Vecchione. If you want the, the dark underbellies of rape, tortured, murdered, assassination, yeah. burning people on bridges, <laughs> go to the other episodes with us as always. All of your writings will be in the description Audiobooks, some are on Audible, some are on Kindle. You can find them all. And hold on, I will stop.